Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Irish Economics Podcast. Today I am joined by Owen McLaughlin of UCC. Owen's work has covered economic history and environmental sustainability. One of the most interesting things about Owen's work is that a lot of it helps us to understand the current COVID pandemic that we're currently going through. We discuss a piece of research he has been carrying out with Chris Colvin at Queen's in Belfast on how to best capture the debt toll associated with the Spanish flu. And he applies this concept to the COVID numbers in Ireland. In essence, he finds that age is important. And if properly taken into account, the headline results can be very different. So that's a a very interesting conclusion. And we go through the details of that piece of research. We then go on to discuss a paper he's he's written on Irish land bonds of the early 20th century. Essentially, these were loans given to Irish farmers, but were backed by the UK government in various sort of agreements and hybrid agreements. This cross-jurisdictional experience provides lessons that we should take into account when interpreting recent discussions surrounding euro bonds, or corona bonds, or whatever you like to call them. Um, So... Owen takes us through that. He he takes us through the land bond experience and what he can tell us about the more recent uh, EU experience. Finally, then we discuss how we can capture concepts of sustainability when measuring the standard of living. So we're all familiar with metrics such as GDP, but these do not take into account maybe environmental effects or how sustainable uh, growth can be. And Owen takes us through research he has carried out on applying alternative methods to take into account these aspects of sustainability when measuring welfare through time. You can still find the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash irishecompod if you want to help to keep things going. As you know, this is a self-funded venture. I have to pay the bills myself and some of those bills fell due last week. The Patreon really softened the blow, so thanks to everyone who helped uh, keep this on the road. Okay, so without further ado, I'll leave you to my conversation with Owen. There's a lot of talk in the last while about the Spanish flu because I suppose it's the last global pandemic that we've experienced. Maybe you could tell us a bit about just introduction and background to the Spanish flu and what exactly happened and how it maybe perhaps is similar to what we're experiencing at the moment with COVID. Yeah, okay, so as you say, it's the last major pandemic. So like... um 20th century, we get three influenza pandemics, 1918, there's one in, um, I guess, 1958, sorry, 1957, one in 1968, but the 1918 one is off the charts. So this is the one like the epidemiologists go back to and study. This is the one like that um, 
it's just so it's such a major event. Like you can see it in life expectancy charts for the US, right? So there's a big dip uh, around 1918. So it's a it's a major major event. Uh, first wave hits spring 1918. There's a second wave autumn 1918, and then there's a third wave in um, in spring 1919. So the estimates are. The conservative estimate is about 20 million dead globally. The revised estimates are probably about 50 million, and these can go up to 100 million. So we're, we're talking about um, just a comparison at the time. So this is during World War I, tail end of World War I. Nine million uh, war dead in World War I. So the Spanish flu kills more people than, than the war does. Um, and the impact is is extreme in some countries and in other countries it doesn't seem to hit them as much but it's it's global so if it's a definition of a of a pandemic it's a new strain of of influenza h1n1 um it's something so like there was an outbreak in uh, or kind of an epidemic pandemic around 1890 of influenza but this one is more more um, more severe and if you go back, so like when, when I started looking into this, I was reading about global catastrophic risk. There's a brilliant book, very exciting. And it, it gives like the major um, pandemics of the past, you know, in recorded history. So like you're going plague of Justinian and about 25 to 40% population dead all the way to um, influenza, 1918, Spanish flu. And Spanish flu is right there, which um, they reckon about you know, uh, mortality rates, um, the rates are hard to do because population estimates are very dodgy for this time. It's between two censuses effectively, right? So normally you'd have a census 1910 and then you'd have another one 1920. For Ireland, we're on um, 1911 and the next one would have been 1921. Uh, and so you tend to just, a lot of these studies just look at the, the raw counts of people dead, but not the, the population um, you know, uh, you know, as a percentage of population, so it's hard to get a, a good figure on this. The other one that people compare to, um, so influenza is is obviously a, it's a respiratory illness, but the more recent pandemic would be H, HIV AIDS. So in this literature, you see a lot of people making comparison between what happened in 1918 and HIV AIDS. So HIV AIDS, there's different uh, transmission, obviously. But it's um, the the number of dead, it, it, you know, the number of died from this is quite high as well. So this is about twenty five to sixty five million. So this is get makes it into this uh, global catastrophic risk kind of thing. Uh, but so, but your paper then is um, specifically looking at trying to estimate how many people were were affected by the the like the death count basically, and trying to get a better estimate of the death count. Is is, is that correct? So the death count, but also as a rate. So what's the uh, what's the rate that died and what's the variation across the country? So the thing for us was when we're looking at this, we're looking like a lot of the studies are U.S. focused, right? So the U.S. dominates this because it's such a big event in the U.S. For Ireland, there's not that much out there. So there was three PhDs done pretty much back to back. One looked at Munster, one looked at Leinster, one looked at uh, Ulster, and then they try and merge it into the na- uh, national picture. But these are pretty much um, kind of history of medicine focused or social social histories. And then the other, the only kind of uh, study that's put it into econometric is um, it's Alan de Bromhead, Fernie, who and they look at the 1918 election. So the election happens during the second wave. So that's in December 1918. And they see like, well, it doesn't affect the uh, 
So it affects the turnout, but not the results. Um, but everyone's using the 1911 population as like a denominator. So if you're looking at rates, they're saying, well, compared to 1911, but this is happening like 1918, 1919, like it's happening a good bit away from when the census was. Uh, and then that kind of assumes that nothing happened in between. There's no conscription in Ireland, right? But in 1914, 15, uh, you have a lot of enlistments. So this is where you get the volunteers, you get people in Dublin and Belfast signing up. So it makes a big impact on the population. And if you don't have a lot of men in the country, then it's hard to have kids. So, <laughs> yeah, fair point. Uh, yeah. It, it take, takes two to tango kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, okay. So the, the, the birth rate goes down. So that was kind of something that's not really documented if you implicitly assume that there's no difference between 1911 population and 1918. So the composition of the population would change. Uh, so these are things that we thought if we use Ireland as a case study, we can highlight this. So Ireland is small. Um, it's manageable. Like if you do the US, like that would take a bit of effort because so what the US does, the US um, Census Bureau estimates population by state annually. And so they have annual estimates, but it's kind of um, effectively like linear interpolation. And they say around 1914, 15, um, the trends that we're using are based on the previous decades. So they're based on the 1900-1910 census. And nor in normal times, this might be a good approximation of what's happening to population. But immigration to the US is stalled because of the war. They're getting less immigration in. So this is going to distort. If you're using the previous uh, decades immigration trends, it's not the same. So they said, well, it's likely to be an under overestimate in some, some states more than others. Uh, and if you look at by state, you see some states have really high immigration shares in 1910. Um, so it, w- it would distort it. So like eventually, I guess someone will, will do it. It might be us, it might be someone else. But you go back to the US and do a more up-to-date estimate of the population so you can see what's going on. For Ireland, it's easy because it's 32 counties. We're talking small numbers. So if we make a, if we make a mistake, it's not it'd be noticeable and we can fix it. Uh, if we make a mistake in the US... Like you mightn't spot it immediately and then, you know, it could distort what we say. And if we, if we get a paper out too quick, we might get the wrong message. Whereas this one, it's manageable and we can, we can make a um, kind of realistic assessment of what was going on. So you want to compare it to the 1918 population. So how else, how exactly uh, do you go about doing that? So the way we, uh, can I just go back a bit to say why we, we care about this as well? Sure. We really want, we don't want just the total population. We want to look at the age groups. So we want to look at what age groups are affected. So in this literature, they're saying that it's um, people in the prime of their lives are the ones that are getting infected and dying. Uh, and so traditionally, like the flu pandemics affect the older uh, population. So over 65s tend to, to get, get it and, and tend to you know have higher mortality from, from the flu. And when you go back to Ireland, like there's two epidemics before this. We have 1892 and 1900. And in those ones, it's over 55 population. So you can use, for those ones, they're really close to the census here. So you can use 1891 census, you can use 1900 census. There's no kind of war is going to distort that. And you can see like that the over 55s have a really high uh, mortality rate compared to the um, to the other population. Um, so what we want to do then is to look at the deaths by age. And part of the reason for this was to look at differences across counties in Ireland so some counties have really high immigration, 
traditionally, and they're left with an older population because like the younger population mm. tend to be the ones that migrate. Uh, and in some places in the country, like Be- Dublin and Belfast, tend to be younger. So there's, you know, is is do you have a higher death rate in Dublin because um, because you have a younger population more exposed than say you would in Mayo, where they traditionally have higher emigration? So what we try to do then is to do age adjustment. So this is the thing that demographers do: is you you, you calculate the um, you get death by age, and you get the population of that age group. And you weight it by a standard population. So for us, we, we calculated a population in, in 1911 using OECD population. So it weights the population by the, by the size of, um, over the share of the, the groups in the population. And so if we do that, then we can make comparisons over time and space in Ireland to see what, what parts of the country did worse, what parts of the country did better. So that's the kind of, there are two reasons for doing this. So the existing literature doesn't, um, doesn't estimate the population in, in, in 1918, uses 1911. And the other, they don't do age adjustment. So they don't compare, uh, you know, the age distribution. So like in mortality statistics, age is one of the biggest predictor of mortality. The older you get, the more likely something will kill you. If we, mm-hmm. we don't live forever, right? So something's going to get us. Um, so that's kind of the reason we started doing this was to see, okay, so does, does this matter for Ireland? Uh, and if it matters for Ireland, then it has implications for everywhere else. And within Ireland, we see a lot of variation because of this tradition of emigration. So if you go, if you talk about the US, they have a tradition of immigration. Where the closest to to like a US city would be Dublin or Belfast, because they're drawing uh, migrants from from different parts of the country. You'd also see it in the, in the other cities in, in Ireland. So if you go down uh, disaggregated, you'd see like different parts of the country at different. Um, Kind of demographic compositions and the other reason for doing this as well is because the literature is emphasizing um different impact on sex right so men tend to tend to be more affected than women in the, in the literature and so we want to see what's going on with this so that's kind of like the motivation for doing it right and so we want to understand the, the effect but we want to make sure that our figures aren't distorted by a certain location having too many old people. Would that, uh, be, the, yeah. that be the so? For example, you might say, "Well, okay, a rural area like the west of Ireland might have a lot, a lot of old." You might think, "Well, this, we're doing really badly here," but we're doing badly here because there's a lot of old people here. Yeah, and um, for the Spanish flu, it'd be the opposite because it affects younger people. So, if you have a younger population, you might be doing worse because you have a younger population right. than than an area where the demographic isn't as affected. Um, so like, um, that, that, that'd be the motivation for doing this. The, the classic example of this, in, like they use the U S would be, if you looked at Florida and Alaska, right? So Florida gets a lot of retirees, Alaska doesn't, Yeah. but Alaska might look like it has, um, you know, uh, b- better, better, uh, death rate than Florida, but you have to compare like with like, and so age is a con- confounder here. Uh, so that is the, the motivation. If it matters for Ireland in this kind of case, it would matter for everywhere. That would be kind of motivation. Yeah. And it, it seems useful in two ways, I think, for policy. One, that you can sort of see the general effort, a bit better picture the general effort if it's if it's how, how, how we're, we're dealing with, with the issue. And secondly, if you compare the two, you can say, well, um, 
this is the effect the age is having in different locations and, and, and give you an and maybe pinpoint where you need to target areas where there might be, you know, more vulnerable populations or whatever. Yeah, that, that's it exactly. So that, that's kind of what we want to do and it's been missing in, in the literature. So it's 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 not in the Irish literature, but it's not in any of the literature right. for this. So the US studies, they look at uh, raw death counts. Um, the US studies that would use contemporary records are using a population that's been estimated using linear interpolation. The US uh, estimates of flu don't use um, kind of age-adjusted mortality statistics, even though like the US are like some of the pioneers for doing this. Um, the the contemporary, like, so a lot of studies came out this year, like uh, we're like, we're not the first people to think of, wow, Spanish flu, we should do something with this. But the, the studies that came out, they're just using like data you can get off the CDC website. So, okay, we have a good idea of why, why we're doing this. And you touched on some of the, the correction procedure. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that and then just maybe the findings you had on, on how, how this correction, how it affected, affected your results. So like all the time, uh, statistical agencies will try and make population projections, usually after a census. So to get an estimate of what's happening in the population between census points, and it's it's standard uh, demography. So what what causes change in population? Births, deaths, and, and migration. Effectively, um, we have we use the annual vital statistics that are that are recorded. So these start from eighteen sixty four. They get better over time. So Brendan Walsh had a paper looking like this is a, a long time ago, but he looked at the um, the kind of how accurate are the registrations compared to the census. So if you have registrations of births. How, how accurate is it compared to when the census says the number of people under one? So they would be the number of people born in a year. In 1871, um, there's a lot of variation between the registration and the census. But then by 1911, it gets a lot better. So we were, these are the stats we're using. So we have annual uh, births. The deaths are annual by age. So we, we take account of uh, deaths by age. So we, we effectively subtract deaths from, from the age bands from the census. The other thing is the population ages by year. So we make adjustment for, for yearly uh, aging. So, you know, a 29-year-old that's in the 25 to 30 would go into, uh, sorry, um, whatever it is, 25 to 30. So if you're 30 in one year, you go into the next band next year, that kind of thing. Um, and then migration. So we have these uh, emigration stats. There's recorded emigration stats from people leaving the country um, so we, we incorporate this in and we know the age band of the emigrants. So we adjust the age bands using this these contemporary records. The thing that we're kind of short on is Im- immigrants coming into the country. So we use, um, there's a report on immigration in the 1950s and they have some data on immigration. So we use this to supplement. But the thing for Ireland is it's net immigration. This is a period when still a lot of people go into the States Historically, Ireland has some of the highest emigration rates in Europe, so it's it's a it's a net uh, emigration story, not not a net uh, immigration story. Uh, and we we know where where the immigrants come from, and we have a general idea where the immigrants will go to, so we can we can do that. This is you know we, we update this annu- annually, so we go from we we use start from the census, we go go our way up to nineteen fourteen, and then the war hits. So when the war hits, we need to have an idea of where enlistment happens in Ireland. Um, so there is actually a lot of um, a lot of enlistments during this period. 
And we have some parliamentary papers that kind of give us a, an idea of where the distribution is. And we have an idea of the age group of, of soldiers. So soldiers tend to be between 18 and 40. And um, so these are kind of like the ideal age group for soldiers. And so we have all these British parliamentary papers talking about it. What we do, though, is we only use enlistment in, our, in Ireland. So if you're an Irish immigrant and you go to Britain and you enlist in Britain, um, this would up the total number of Irish in the British Army, but it wouldn't... Um, these, these people have already left Ireland, so they're already emigrating. So they, they're probably counted in, in the immigration, not in the enlistment. So that's why we, we have a lower total number of Irish um, recorded enlistment then will be, you know, the general view that there's about 200,000 Irish in, in, in the army at this point, but we'll get a lower number because they're enlisted in Ireland. And when they come back in, so they come back, um, come back in, like uh, once the war is over, there's demobilization. We have an estimate of how many um, Irish soldiers die. What's the death rate? So we apply this death rate to the soldiers returning. When, like, the contemporary uh, records, they treat this as though it's emigration. So the soldiers emigrate, they go to France, they're gone, they're not in the population. And when they come back, it's kind of return migration. So today we call it a special population. So armies are considered, like, a special population that's different from the rest of the population because they, they tend to move around and, and be more mobile. Um, so we, we do this annually. We update the ages annually, and we get this is how we get a 1918, 1919 picture. When we look at the deaths in the from Spanish flu compared to the population 1911 and population 1918, we get a different uh, picture. We get um, the 1918 uh, estimates show show differences, especially under under fives, because there's been a decrease in the in the in the birth rate. There's uh, there's less less children under five, and these the, these children also experience high mortality. So then the, the death rate under five increases. Um, for the middle population, we kind of see slight differences from from 1911, but the biggest differences are in Belfast and Dublin, where the highest uh, military enlistment was. So this is where we see. Belfast and Dublin, the population, like we have these population pyramids in the paper and it's very visible what's happening in Belfast and Dublin compared to the rest of the country. You, you see a segment of the population is gone. Um, and so the other thing that we, we, we note as well, during the war, there's reserve occupations. So certain occupations are essential to the war effort. Agriculture is one of the main ones. You have to feed the, the army and the, and the civilian population. So farmers in the countryside are reserved occupations, especially in our. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ireland, but certain occupations in the cities are reserved occupations as well. And these are kind of um, these are people of working age. They could have been in the military, but they're essential for, for maintaining the war effort. So they have to continue at home working in, in, in their in their occupations. And so we 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 document that in the paper as well. 
that's yeah okay so maybe then so you mentioned that you um had some information then on how this relates to covid maybe you could take us through that yeah so the discussion on covid only looks well a lot a lot of discussions just basically the count of the number of dead uh, dead people from covid how many people have died what's the cases and when people are making comparisons between countries they only say you know, there's whatever cases per 100,000 population. Um, but they don't say, like, what's the difference in demography of the countries? So this, this, this is something that's been picked up by demographers and health scientists. They were saying, well, you got to take account of the demography. So there's papers in the preceding National Academy of Science earlier in the year saying demography is going to be a big predictor of what's happened in COVID. So is the, the you know, the, the composition of the population, how the family structure uh, and so and this paper came out in April with doubt at all. And then there was a response to this saying, well, actually, you have to take account of kind of the comorbidities in the population as well, and also take account of the, of the age structure. So when we we're doing this, so we did this for, for 1918 influenza just to see what was going on. But when you do it for COVID as well, um, so we're just using Ireland because Ireland's small. But for COVID, we have a nice kind of... Uh, comparison here we've got republic of ireland northern ireland so uh, we look at march to june uh, official stats of covid deaths by by age and sex so we're able to do the same kind of age adjustment the nice thing here is that the first case uh, occurs around the same time in both northern ireland and the republic it's 27 of february in the north 29th in, in uh, february in, in the republic they both come back from italy so they both brought the both covid back from italy um, the lockdown, you know, social distancing, et cetera, happened earlier in the Republic. So this is the 12th of March. Northern Ireland had St. Patrick's Day, had, uh, you know, had a bit more fun for, for two more weeks, and then they had the lockdown. And then, like, the commentary in the newspapers, like, there was an Irish Times article saying, like, Northern Ireland is doing way worse. Uh, if we look at a crude death rate, Northern Ireland is 44.5 deaths from COVID versus 35.8 uh, per 100,000 for the Republic. So if you just look at that, you say, wow, the South has done a much better job of managing, managing COVID. So that's it, you know, case shut. But actually, that's not it. If you look at the stats, right, so the similar share of deaths in the over 65 population, 93.5 in the Republic, 92.8% in the North. So that's very similar. They're not that different in terms of who, like the age groups that are dying from this. The big difference then is the North is older. So it has a higher share of the population in over 65s. So 15.8 versus 13.9%. If you age adjust, this is the thing I was mentioning earlier. So the simple age adjustment I did here is Northern Ireland's older. What if it has the same population distribution as the South? So we weight all the, you know, the COVID deaths by age band in the North by the South population distribution. Well, when we do this, the North's uh, age-adjusted mortality is 35.6. If you remember that the Republic's age, um, the Republic's crude mortality rate is 35.8. So the North's actually doing better um, relatively to, to the Republic. So this isn't the narrative that's out there. The narrative is that the North has done worse. Within, within the UK, Northern Ireland is one of the better performers uh, without taking account of age adjustment. So... Breaking it down even further, if you look at by the age bands, right? So 65 to 74, well, the North's mortality rate is 2.7% 2, 2. higher than the Republic's. 
Um, if you look at the 74 to 85 uh, band, the north is 2.4% lower. And then if you look in the, the, the uh, distribution of deaths in the over 85s, the north rate is 5% lower than the Republic. So it's getting lower mortality in the groups that are most vulnerable to, to COVID. So it's not a it's not moot to say, you know, over 85. These are like half the COVID deaths pretty much. 45.3% uh, of all the deaths of COVID are in this age band. Um so this is this is an important point that's not being made made. So if you if you do this across countries, and this is you know kind of why some people are asking, well, how come Africa is doing so well at COVID? They have a lot of cases, but the, the mortality rate in Africa is is lower than it is in Europe. So there's an article in Science that looked at this. And if you look at the distribution of ages, I think it was, they had uh, Kenya, Malawi, the age was, average age was about 20 versus Spain is probably 40 to 45. Uh, so this would account for why older populations seems to be doing worse at COVID than, than younger. So if you want to make these comparisons across countries, you have to take account of the age differences in, in the population. An interesting thing to take into account because I suppose we were very conscious of, of the fact that interpreting the, the data that is, is some countries have different measures than others, some countries have, have different amounts of testing than others. And that, you know, is a caveat that, that, that we all sort of, well, most people will bear in mind when, when reading the data, but we don't take into account our demograph demography is not as, as obvious, at least um, to most of us. So it's good to sort of uh, yeah, highlight that. The, the other thing I want to point out, so like 1918, so the studies are coming out saying, well, it didn't have a big impact on the economy as say COVID, like COVID is causing major recessions. Like, so US is at depression level unemployment, but 1918, like it's kind of a blip. It's a, it's a small recession, if anything. Uh, and one of the things that happens here is this is early in like the uh, epidemiological transition like there's very high mortality rates in general compared to today so like the irish one i think is around 16 uh, 16 per thousand crew mortality in, in like the 1910s whereas today it's six so we're in high mortality environment 1918 today we're in low low mortality environment so this is um this is a, a pandemic that's happening at a, in, in a low kind of mortality environment, which is very different to, to 1918. Um, so that, that's something that, that doesn't get really discussed when people are making the comparisons between 1918 and, and today. Um, so and in 1918, it's a very high mortality uh, event as well. So we're talking, like I looked up the, the global COVID mortality to date, it's less than a million, whereas 1918... The estimates are saying 30 to 50 million in, in, in an era when population levels are much lower. So this was, um, it, it's very difficult to make the comparison uh, across time. And so the lessons that epidemiologists got from studying 1918 mightn't be as applicable today as they, as they, as they were in, in the past, right? So the second part of our discussion covered Owen's work on land bonds in Ireland. Another topic with contemporary parallels. So where Spanish flu research explored the impacts of the spread of a virus and how we measure the impact, this piece of research explores the impacts of an economic policy not dissimilar to the recent debate on your bonds or corona bonds. So I'll drop you back into our discussion at the point where Owen is setting the scene on why exactly land bonds were issued in Ireland in the first place. This, The context of this is... Uh 
the land war in Ireland and how the British state responded to the land war. Uh, so the first response was to lower rents for farmers, and the second response was to basically bail out the landlords, give get like give give, give the the farmers the ability to buy their land from the landlords, and they won't have this conflict. Right. So maybe you could just tell us what the land war was. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Go, going back a step. <laughs> it's basically a conflict between farmers and tenant farmers and, and landlords uh, at the end of the 1870s. So this is one of the first globalization shocks. Um, it's very bad weather, 1877 to 79. Um, there's thing just relating back to the Spanish flu. When you look at year to year excess mortality, 1879 is one of the worst years since records began. The, if you look at by quarter, 1918, quarter four is really bad. But 19, 1879 had like four back-to-back quarters of really bad excess mortality. Probably some of the worst years since the actual famine in Ireland. And one of the things that's going on is that weather is bad, but there's a big increase in importation of, of grain from the Americas. And so prices go down. So farmers um, respond by saying, well, landlords, will you cut, cut the rent, basically? And la- landlords are mm-hmm. evicting... This is a really bad period. Um, possibly, you know, rents are judged to be really high. You can make a comparison to today if you want. Um, but n- no one's going out, uh, uh, you know, protesting at landlords. Landlords are getting shot. Uh, mm. There's a lot of violence, um, threatening letters, etc. So this is, it's a very exciting period. This is like a social revolution. And the British state's response is first to lower rents. So you have these rent commissions that lower rents. And the second is to try and get rid of the problem once and for all by encouraging farmers to buy their land from, from the landlords. And to do this, uh, you have to encourage the landlords to sell, and then you have to encourage the, the farmers to buy. So you have to create a situation where both are happy. And you need a lot of finance to do this. Uh, instead of giving them cash, they gave bonds, so land bonds, were first issued in the 1890s. And so this is um, historically... Uh, 19th century, this is like some of the lowest interest rates in the, in the in, in the end of the 19th century, which means that the price of the bonds were were quite high. So if you're giving someone a bond to par, they're able to sell at 108, for example. So you, you make a profit off that. Uh, and so this kind of incentivized landlords to sell in the 1890s. So you see a lot of very commercially aware landlords selling up, selling up. But then the interest rates start to rise, bond prices start to go down. This is becoming uh, less attractive. In 1903, this is the Big Land Act, the Wyndham Land Act, the, the government introduces like a bonus for landlords for selling. So this is trying to replicate the conditions of the 1890s. And again, these are bond financed. Uh, and so the, the way it worked was the government would effectively issue these bonds. Um, they could either be paid directly, uh, pay the landlords directly in cash by floating the bonds in the market, getting, getting cash for them and giving it to the, to the landlords. Or they could issue issue bonds to the landlord, let the, let the landlord deal with it. So you have a series of these issues of bonds. You got 1903, 1909, I think it's 1923, and there's a few more in, in the free state. But what you see is a massive transfer of land ownership. You see effectively Ireland goes from being a land, you know, small number of landlords owning all land to a tenant farmer uh, economy. So th- this this is the only country in the UK where this happens. That the UK is willing to do this for for the agricultural community. The agricultural community is effectively being being um, you know th- this is an era of intense competition from globalization. You don't see it in Scotland. You don't see it in England. 
what you see in England is uh, kind of market powers. So w when the when value of land goes down, landlords are willing to sell, and uh, farmers in England have the the ability either to borrow or to have the the kind of the, the capital on hand to buy their buy their own farms. But you don't you wouldn't see this in Ireland. You wouldn't there's kind of like a credit constraint. So the, the government comes in, it's able to borrow at low rates. Um, it gives very long long terms in these bonds. So they're effectively perpetuities like the consoles at the time. They're the long term is about 68.5 years for farmers. So they're paying this back mm -hmm. over a long period. The the annuities that they pay are fixed. So these are you know, depending on the, the the prices of agricultural produce, this can be good or bad. If prices go up, it's good for farmers. If prices are going down, it's bad for farmers. So during the first war, this is a great time for farmers. Prices are going up. Uh, but later, you have deflation. Prices are going down. It's really bad for farmers. And during this time, the fact that these are, these are guaranteed bonds, they're guaranteed by the British state, by the, by the exchequer, and effectively treated as though they're sovereign debt. So when you look at the pages, the listings on the stock exchange, they're listed next to uh, the various government um, issued uh, debt at the time. So they're under guaranteed land stock. Um, derogatory term at the time was bog stock, because there's Irish bogs that are you're raising money for. This, this was a Tory term, like it was... Yeah, uh, well... Yeah. So, so basically we look at bog stock uh, over time. Uh, and so the, the neat thing about this, so it's guaranteed by the British state, well... Ireland uh, secedes from the Union effectively. Um, and so we have a lot of complexity here. So under like the original Government of Ireland Act, the, you know, our, the Irish government would have been absolved from uh, any responsibility from collecting and handing over the, the money to the British state. Um, but because of how things turned out, it's not really mentioned in the treaty. It's kind of ambiguous. We have a few deals in the, in the 1920s. But it's kind of complicated then. So you have a guarantee from a British state, it's guaranteeing the debt of effectively um, farmers in, in the Republic. Um, and it's the responsibility of the government to collect the, the repayments and transfer them to, to the, the United Kingdom. Yeah. Um, and so that's what, so the, the pre-independence bonds are guaranteed solely by the UK government. And then the biggest spending of the free state in the first few years, so just for a comparison, so the first national loan by the Free State is 10 million. The 1923 Land Act is about 23 million. Uh, and so the, this is necessary because of the, you know, people in the countryside are just taking farms or the, the, the kind of the land conflict isn't really resolved. So you need this to restore order to the countryside. And the British government comes in as a co-guarantor in these bonds. So what we have is bonds that are issued, uh, guaranteed by the British state. And then we have these bonds that are either co-guaranteed or Irish guaranteed after independence. So we have a before and after, and we have like two different bonds that are kind of there. They have the same characteristics, but the guarantee is the only difference. The idea was to see, well, what happens with the, the guarantee? And so like I have this, you know, I, I collected this data from the Dublin Stock Exchange daily from 1890s up to 1938. And originally, it was because there's no uh, there's no series of Irish bonds because well, Ireland as a as a, as a sovereign nation didn't exist until independence, effectively. So this is kind of like getting a sense of what interest rates were going to be in Ireland. But I wanted to see what would happen like during the you know the revolutionary period. Like, did this go up or you know is there is there a risk premium associated with Ireland? And so. We compare the Irish bonds effectively with a risk-free asset, which is uh, UK, UK bonds. 
and we look at this over time. And effectively, what we do is just look for structural breaks. Um, and we limit the sample period to, you know, 1920 to 38 to keep it clean. And we effectively we find three structural breaks. So we find one during the, the revolutionary period. There's a bit of uncertainty about what's going to happen. And we see like um, kind of a premium on land bonds throughout the 1920s up until 1932, when the really exciting thing happens is when Dev decides he's, uh, he's not going to repay the annuities. And this is effectively the first uh, default of, of, of the Republic. It, like a lot of people like to say it's not a default, but it's according to the definitions of a sovereign debt default by you know refusing to honor obligations. It's, you know it's, it, it is a default. But once this happens, the British government steps in straight away and honors the guarantee. And once they honor the guarantee, the premium is gone on those bonds. Um, so that that's the nice thing. So just just uh, maybe just to break it down, the premium then is is like or the, the interest rate is a proxy for how risky the investment is and how you what the belief is that it'll be repaid i suppose so if you see a premium there is it's how the markets perceive uh the risk associated associated with this 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 this, this bond essentially yeah, exactly right? so this bond is is uh, effectively it, it it's a it's backed by the land so like if farmers don't repay their their you know their farms will be repossessed uh, and so it's kind of secure because farmers don't want their their land being repossessed. So you see very few uh, defaults on the loans. Yeah. There um, there shouldn't be that much uncertainty because um, the majority of this debt is owned in the UK by UK institutions. There's a, effectively a currency union between the two, so there's no there's no exchange rate risk. Um, you have free trade between the two two countries, so there shouldn't be any risks there. You have integrated factor markets like labor. It's free to move between both. And there's strong political institutions in Ireland. They're actually replicating what, what the existing institutions from the UK. And there's um, there's an awareness that there will be sanctions if, if uh, farmers refuse to repay. And then there's a guarantee from the UK that it will, it will guarantee these bonds if anything happens. So re really... Um, according to the theory on, on debt mutualization, there should be no risk premium on this. There should be zero. But we find the non-negligible risk premium associated with this. So it's something else. And we think it's the uncertainty about the guarantee. The, the guarantee isn't really hashed out. Like who's actually going to who's going to guarantee this if anything happens? Because in the old regime, it was pretty clear it was a UK-issued debt. But now it's an independent country operating by itself. It starts to... Um, you know, raise its own, um, you know, issue more debt. So this is an issue in the literature about uh, the kind of moral hazard associated with this or debt dilution that a country, if you guarantee one country, it might issue more debt. And then the likelihood of it uh, prioritizing the, the kind of debt mutualized, um, or sorry, the mutualized debt will be lower for it. So it might be, you know, be strategic and just take advantage. So this kind of moral hazard will creep in. Like the fact that the the break happens bang on when Dev is it's not like it's a it's a shock he he, he campaigns on this yeah. he states he's going to do it so the British state has a good time to realize what's happening and they they instantly like there there's parliamentary evidence like it's in it's in newspapers reports on this like the the, the really cool thing about this is like there's there's records from the cabinet called the Irish Situation Committee and they talk about how they'll give, um, you know, 
basically a press release saying what they're going to do. And they say, well, we're going to say we're going to honor this. And once they do that, like, that's it. The, the uncertainty about the guarantee is gone. And they honor the repayments as soon as. So bondholders, they, they get their, you know, they get their dividends um, when the time comes. There's no, nothing happening. So there's no, there's no uh, yeah. premium on them then. This is actually, it remind me of the whole, I know we're going to, there's parallels here with co- the COVID response, but it's, it, it reminds you of what happens with Brexit because, and you look at the, the value of sterling and when, thing, when there's uncertainty around Brexit, the value of sterling fluctuates a lot. And then once there's an announcement made, be it it's a hard Brexit or it's no Brexit, well, if there was one of no Brexit, it seems to settle a bit. So it's uncertainty that, that, that drives a lot of a lot of these fluctuations. And it seems to be here, it's the uncertainty that, 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 that's, that's driving the risk premium when it comes to the yeah, bonds. So yeah. it's just the, uh, I guess, the credibility, right? So you don't really know until an action is taken. So that's kind of why I'd be a bit worried about Eurobonds. So the European... Union would, would come out and do some, you know, they make a grand gesture, they'll do this. The European Commission has said they're going to borrow, what is it, 750 billion, but have they put the thought into how they'll implement this in practice? So, like, it's all well and good with the euro. It looked like it was well designed, but there are uh, there are structural flaws with the euro, and these weren't taken into consideration. If you do the same thing again, will you just create this uncertainty? And you're right, the same point with Brexit. There's just a lot of uncertainty and it keeps going until something is concrete and, and done. Like so, um, pretty pretty much after Brexit, like uh, Sterling dropped. It fluctuated wildly, depending on what was said. Um, yeah, the same kind of thing would would happening. I suppose it's underappreciated sometimes that the uncertainty itself is it, it can be a problem. And and this this it comes out it comes out in this case. Did you have any further effects then that that you want to go through or? Yeah, so we did two things. We did the structural break, and then we looked at a difference and difference effectively. So we looked at we we looked at the two types of bonds. So the ones that are guaranteed by the British state solely, and the ones that have like an Irish guarantee. And we did like a you know a narrower period, like I think it was nineteen twenty six to thirty eight. But when we did this, we see like that the the risk premium associated with the UK guarantee goes away effectively when you when when the guarantee is implemented. But then the kind of uncertainty on the Irish ones went up a bit. Um, right. So that, that was interesting. The other thing I should say like um, about this is what happens. This is all like, uh, this is messy, right? So dev defaults uh, at the same time pretty much as the, the UK war loan is being restructured. So the UK war loan is massive. This is, this is uh, effectively, I think... Um, this is another one that, that, that could be classified as a, as a default. So the UK restructures this entire war loan because it's a massive burden on the state. This happens at the same time. The way we get around this is, um, so like Ograda has, a, uh, in his book, he looks at the bond prices in Ireland relative to, to Britain. And he says it's mainly, um, it's being driven by, by feeling a fall uncertainty. Um, so that's kind of like support for this. Um, and the other stuff, we have all this contemporary records of, of the government talking about how to respond. And we think that there is, like, the link might be that the government, the UK government is unwilling to um, to default on the land bonds itself. So it didn't have to honour the guarantee. Like, it could have said, you know what, that's, that's land in Ireland, let's, you know, leave it. Mm-hmm. But they're trying to restructure the war loan. They need the financial institutions in UK which hold a lot of land bonds to, you know, to participate and uh, kind of engage with this process. So this could be why they don't allow 
the Republic to default. The, at the same time, another thing happens is like Newfoundland has this, uh, you know, they're struggling as well. So the, the response, if you compare the response of the British government to Ireland versus what happens in Newfoundland is very interesting as well. Um, so that's that's it. The other thing, I guess, is this kind of strategic uh, default uh, by, by uh, Fianna Fáil and De Valera. It's brilliant, right? Because they, they're thinking about it. They know that the British government won't, well, their, their anticipation, the British government won't uh, default because they have too much to, to lose from this. Whereas, you know, if we default, what's the worst that can happen? Obviously, the trade war is a re- result of this. Like, British yeah. government tries to recoup some of the money somehow. But um, De Valera knows that, you know, Br- Britain's going to pick up the tab, so why, why not? Uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, as I said before, like, these, these bonds are, like, really, like, they're, they're, they're going for, like, 68 years. So he, he, he doesn't say farmers don't have to stop paying it. He says, you only have to pay half of what you were paying, and you still pay it to the government. So it turns into a land tax rather than mm-hmm. an annuity repayment. Uh, and when the government makes a settlement in 1938, it's a great settlement for this. Um, so this is the 1938 settlement. They they settled for for way less than than what was what is outstanding. So it's really great uh, kind of political move. So like Kevin Rourke's got a great paper about the the the, uh, the economic war, and he sees like basically it's a it's a Fianna Fáil uh, coup in this respect. The game theory going on there is very interesting, or the um, the moral hazard. Okay, so maybe if we have 10 minutes or so, just I know you've done some work on, on measuring sustainability. If you could just give us a bit of a, a whistle stop on that or on uh, one thing that I, anyone who's learned, who's done, say, environmental economics would be familiar with the whole concepts of weak sustainability versus strong sustainability and what it means going forward and how to measure this. Maybe you could tell us a bit about, about your work on this area and how, how you give insight into basically how sustainable uh, growth is going forward yeah so the big distinction between um kind of environmental economics and ecological economics is this weak versus strong sustainability right uh so weak sustainability we we think about um the total capital of of uh you know whatever you're looking at if it's the world or if it's a country or a region and your your total capital is comprised of reproducible capital so this would be like factories machines your natural capital, so these are like all gifts of nature, renewable, non-renewable, etc. Uh, human capital and institutional capital. The main distinction which, or the assumption that weak sustainability makes is that uh, you can substitute different forms of capital. So if you run down, say if you're Venezuela, you run down $100 of oil, you can reinvest that or you should reinvest it like later. That, that's kind of one of the, the, the assumptions into another form of capital, right? So that $100 of oil goes into $100 of education. Uh, and, and that's kind of uh, a key thing. The other thing is that you can put a price on everything. You can put a dollar value or euro value on all your, your, your natural capital. Mm-hmm. The strong sustainability tends to say, actually, there are critical thresholds. Once you go below this, you, you, you know, you're, you're kind of, uh, this is existential risk, basically, that you, know, you might be able to live uh, you know, if you if you undermine ecosystem services enough, they, these provide the oxygen for us to breathe, and we won't be able to breathe. That's kind of fundamentally where it would lead to. Uh, the other thing is that you know it's not substitutable. If you if you cut down a, a forest for for um, you know f- for pastoral agriculture, 
you know, you, you can't re replace that. You can't substitute it with human capital or, or education. And also the last one is that you can't really put a, a dollar value on some of these things. Some of these things are priceless and it's mm -hmm. very hard to put a, put a price on it. So that is the main distinction. Within this literature, like my argument here would be, uh, so we're kind of testing for um, whether or not there's a weak or, or, you know, if a country's weak, sustainable. If you fail this test, well, you're not going to pass a strong sustainability test because it's really saying what's happening with your natural capital. Um, and so if your natural capital is being undermined, if it's not being reinvested, you'll fail this weak sustainability test and you'll also fail a strong sustainability test. So strong is like... Um, Effectively, it's it's a stronger test of sustainability than the weak, um, but there is this big debate then between ecologists and economists over what what one to focus on. Um, when like so, one of the papers we have on this, um, it's in the Oxford Review Economic Policy. We look at um, natural capital stocks, and so there's two ways to do it. One way is you look at um, the discounted uh, value of rents of, of, your, of your natural capital. The other way is to look at the stock of capital, what's happening with the stock of capital and, and value it using like a kind of a price, not, not market price, but a shadow price uh, of capital. So you kind of incorporate it, but I guess you're never going to please all the people all the time. So basically, you're trying to test if there's weak sustainability as the lower threshold and if you find weak sustainability, well, then we can look and see if there's strong sustainability. But first of all, we have to see if there's weak sustainability uh, in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I think it's it's um, it's straightforward to find, like, to to get the data for weak sustainability. The strong sustainability requires a lot more um, more more data. So it tends to focus on like physical indicators. So, like, what is the what is the biodiversity in a, in an area? All this. Um, so this would be more kind of uh, kind of ecology based uh, work okay. to, to estimate that. Right. Okay. So you're just it's more of an accounting. In my mind, it sounds like it's more like an accounting exercise. You sort of take out well, that that's probably very much uh, not <laughs> uh, underestimating the amount of work that goes into it. But I mean, you're 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 calculating the different elements of capital and seeing how how the total changes through time. Would that would that be correct? Yeah, that that would be exactly it. So, like, I didn't invent this. Uh, this this is uh, builds on a lot of work uh, from a lot of. There's a lot. Of, there's a strong theoretical foundation for all of this stuff. Like the the the, the intellectual origins, I would say, go back to Solo. Solo's original original growth model. Then you have the oil shocks, and so like you come out with limits to growth. Uh, so this this comes out in in the seventies. This is like you know. The, the ultimate uh, apocalyptic model basically saying we're uh, we're doomed and uh, um i think it's around 2000 if i remember or maybe it's a bit later but this overshooting collapse so that yeah. they, basically we're using up too much resources uh, this comes out around the same time as the oil shock so it really scares people and solo uh, comes up with a um kind of augmented solo model where he incorporates natural capital um and so he says himself that he was, you know, he was influenced by limits to growth. He doesn't say anything nice about the limits to growth, but uh, he says it was it was influ influential. And then so like the intellectual origins of all this stuff, it's from the 1970s. It's Solo, Heal, Stiglitz, um, mm. and Sen. And then the major kind of 
kind of intellectual powerhouse for this approach, I guess, would be John Hartwick. So he's got an American Economic Review paper, which effectively says if you uh, reinvest your your, your, um, rents from natural resources, uh, you can have kind of sustainable uh, growth. And so Solo said later that if he had thought about it, he would have done what Hartwick did. And so they kind of have this kind of shared uh, intellectual lineage with growth accounting. The the difference here, uh, the theory is tend to focus more on well-being. So it's all about... um, you know, how, how can we maintain our well-being or utility or, or, or improve it uh, from generation to generation? So it's intergenerational well-being, whereas growth is about how can we, how can we grow the economy? Um, but they're, you know, they're, they're similar but distinct, I, I would say. That's actually useful uh, with think about it in that we're trying to see can we sustain intergener- like intergenerational well-being as opposed to, yeah, growth. In some of your papers, then you've tested this week's sustainability and and how what did you find? Were you able to find weak sustainability or evidence that would suggest that there's weak sustainability? Yeah, so just can I explain how you do the test because it's a bit it might come across a bit convoluted or complicated. It's a very simple test. Like so, the original paper was by um, Kirk Hamilton. What's it? Hamilton and Ferreira Vincent, uh, yeah. and so they looked at this. So Kirk Hamilton was the chief environmental economist at the World Bank, and the World Bank has been the leaders in doing these uh, kind of studies on on uh, how you measure sustainability, how you measure the the wealth of nations um, today. And the way they do it was you have your sustainability indicator. Uh, how does it relate to future well-being? And so for economists, the way to measure well-being is usually in terms of consumption per capita or real wages. So we looked at the change, the discounted uh, present value of changes in consumption over time. So if you do this, say, for 20 years or 50 years or 100 years, that's the kind of calculation. When the studies that Ferrer, Hamilton, Vincent did, so they did a bunch of, um, I think it started off as global in, in one of the first papers, and then it was narrowed down to a sample of developed countries. If you do this over time, um, they, you know, hopefully you'd find a one-for-one relationship between the indicator of sustainability and future well-being, or the, so that'd be like the strongest test you can do. Or as you improve your measure of uh, of sustainability, so it's genuine savings in the literature. If you, if you improve this, if you add more things in, will it become a better predictor of future well-being? So if you do it modern, because this is over twenty years or thirty, fifty. We can't really test it with modern data because the data they're all getting is from like the World Bank database. Some of it starts in 1970s, some of it starts in 1980s. It's over 20 year periods. Um, so what we did then was go back in time. So can you look at this for like the best one would be the UK because you have people have been collecting data going back to the Industrial Revolution. If you do this mm-hmm. test for the UK over you know different time horizons what happens if you incorporate different aspects of capital into into your your estimators what happens and what we tend to find is that the over the long run this is a good predictor um so over like 100 years this is a really good predictor of future well-being so we, we the the testing is is kind of like uh it's straightforward enough you only have two variables you just want to see if there's a relationship so we're just testing the theory the theory set in infinite time for it's basically saying that the, you, you know your your consumption um, or, or your sorry your utility is based on your um, your performance in this sustainability indicator, 
Uh, and so over 100 years, there's a real good approximation of that. And for the UK, we do see evidence. We see like these two series are co-integrated. And so that's kind of our, our basis for saying this is a good, good indicator of, of future well-being. So it could be a good predictor. Um, so we use kind of like in-sample prediction, basically, see how it performs within the sample. If you're like if you're just using the theory today, we can't really say much about 50 years in the future. So we could be adopting a, a model that doesn't really work. Whereas if you go back 1760, predict to 1860, and this thing works, and if it works down from 1860 to 1960, this is a good indication. This is a good, a good predictor. Um, so we do find evidence. The caveat, I guess you, you probably get to this, is you got to put in TFP to get there. Uh, okay, total factor pro productivity. So that's total factor productivity. Yeah. So that's technology essentially. Yeah. So this is the uh, the black box. We we don't know what it is, but it works. Um, so th this comes from like a paper Weitzman. So Martin Weitzman, he's, he's one of the the main guys in this. If you want to see like you know people listening to this want to know what exactly I'm on about. He has a, like a few years ago, he presented at this wealth conference and he gave one of the best presentations of this theory, real simple one in 20 minutes. And everyone who walked away with it thought they understood everything. Uh, but then you try and replicate what he did and you're like, wow, how did he do it? But he's one of these guys, he had like a paper in uh, Corley Journal of Economics and he had another one in the Swedish Economic, uh, I think Swedish Economic Review, like pretty decent places. And his main point was, if you incorporate, you have to incorporate TFP because this is one of the major sources of growth for developed countries. The reason why it doesn't work for, if you don't incorporate it, you're only just measuring capital and different types of capital, but you're not incorporating TFP, you're missing what's driving growth. Um, and so once he incorporates it, he has like back of the envelope uh, calculation that pretty much TFP will, will uh, predict future sustainability. He, he, the logic would be that it's kind of like incorporating the value of time, that we're able to get more from our assets um, yeah. over time. We'll just become more efficient at using things. And so it, when we put this in for UK, um, yeah, we, we see the same kind of scenario that, that Weizmann was predicting, that TFP is a major driver of this which is a good and a bad thing, right? Because uh, if, you, if you tell people today, TFP is going to predict your future sustainability, um, people say, well, what exactly is it? Or how do we get to it? Yeah, so essentially, but the message I hear then is it's it's the level of technology. So we should be investing in technology to be sustainable. But that would be very much in line with the weak sustainability argument in that we can substitute away from rainforests towards whatever other sort of man-made technology we could have but in in it's another step then to think about well what are the implications in terms of strong sustainability yeah um, so this is where a lot of criticism will come in that a new technology might have an unintended consequence that mm. it might you know might solve one problem and create another um yeah we can think of an example of diesel cars for that like this was an idea that was supposed to address uh, climate change, we end up creating like uh, pollution problems with that, an, an, an unintended mm. consequence that deals with one problem. Um, so a lot mm. of the strong sustainability uh, kind of advocates would say this is a problem when you just think about technological solutions, you don't think about that it creates a new problem, um, so to speak. Okay. So yeah, that's definitely, definitely an issue. And then the other issue is, well, how exactly are you measuring TFP? Uh, so when we, like I have another paper, um, 
we use German data just to test it out. But if you use different measures of human capital in, in, in TFP, you can lower the residual. And then that should, the lower the residual, the better, right? Because then you're trying to incorporate everything that you know about. And it still does pretty well over over a long uh, time period with that. So that, yeah. that was kind of uh, reassuring so, in some sense. Yeah, so lowering the residual, you're explaining more of the variation of what's going on. That means you're capturing this effect better, essentially. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's kind of like what, what we're hoping to do. Um, so we've been doing this for different countries. I should say, um, yeah, Christian uh, Ducoin and myself and Les Oxley, we, uh, we're looking at global uh, sustainability. Uh, so we're looking at different countries, different periods of time. The idea here is that um, basically we'd have a, an indicator that can compete with GDP to measure the economy over time. Um, so this is something like, you know, the, this uh, Stiglitz-Sen, the Tusi Commission that was commissioned uh, by Sarkozy mm-hmm. in France a few years ago, they're advocating we should have a broader measure of the economy, not just focus narrowly on GDP. And so we're trying to do this historically for as many countries as possible. Um, so some of the issues in this, like it is very interesting literature because you're dealing with, uh, effectively, you're saying that if you use up your natural capital, this will lead to unsustainability. If we take the history of the UK, for example, the UK starts to import a lot of natural capital from other parts of the world. And so if you look at modern day indicators, the exporters of natural capital perform very poorly compared to the importers of natural capital. When you say um, importing natural capital, do you mean things like importing cotton for linen and stuff like that? I I would incorporate that uh, somewhat because, but that's renewable. So it would have right. an impact on the on the soil or um, or oil. And yeah, more, more like resources. oil, more like oil, um, kind of minerals, that kind of uh, exports. Right. Um, yeah. So like, there's there's some good papers. Um, the, the kind of big proponents of this, there's the World Bank approach, and then the U, United Nations Environmental Program, United Nations Development Program have these rival. So it's World Bank, UN. The, uh, you know the Washington versus New York descent kind of approach, hmm. but the the UN ones are very interesting. They, they try and deal with these issues of like, uh, you know, where where is the trade aspect of this? And, and one of my co-authors, Louis Dupuis, he he has a um, kind of few papers on this uh, from his PhD, where he looks at how trade fits in with this, because it, it, it's it's not very straightforward. You know, you can do this accounting, but you need need to account for other things. So people have been doing this for like CO two emissions, you know. You know, where, where exactly are our carbon emissions if we're if we, we've exported manufacturing to other countries and we import the manufactured goods mm. uh, our, our carbon emissions are lower but the, the other people's uh, or other countries emissions are, are higher as a result it's that kind of uh, thinking about this um is there anything else you want to say i guess like the other things we incorporate are pollution into this so if you compare with uh, gdp uh, GDP wouldn't incorporate, um, you know, externality. So if there's any any pollution as a byproduct, it's not really incorporated. The cleanup gets uh, incorporated, like that might boost GDP. But what we do, or what the World Bank's done, is try and incorporate, say, you know, carbon emissions into into uh, genuine savings. Uh, and so we've tried to do this, like we, we we did it with carbon emissions going back historically, using like uh, social cost of carbon. Um, so this is kind of like what Richard Toll was doing. Um, so you know, bring those prices back to, to the um, 18th century. And then more recent work, I guess, um, so Luke McGrath, Stephen Hines have done for Ireland is incorporate 
whole basket of um, pollutants and what happens when you incorporate these into your your sustainability indicators like what's the message if you have different uh, pollutants so that's quite interesting the other ones pollute uh, population growth how do you incorporate population growth over time so really we're talking about wealth and so your wealth's distributed amongst um more people so it's kind of getting diluted so what happens if you incorporate population growth what's the message like so you can see this this touches on lots of issues in environment and development uh, so basically just capturing all these other effects to get a better measure of how the standard of living or wealth welfare has changed throughout the years um and just so when, just coming back to, to the trade issue um so you're saying that countries that import natural capital perhaps fared a bit better so basically they're getting the benefit of the, this natural capital they're importing but they're better than the countries who are exporting i wonder why that is that's sort of it's it's down to the accounting right so right the level of aggregation for this is at the nation state so if you're you're exporting we, we even within our time period like britain was exporting coal but the extraction of coal comes in britain and we subtract that from british savings but if it goes if it goes to to Belgium or it goes to Denmark, um, you know Denmark's getting this coal, and we don't make any adjustments on, on you know to Denmark or, or Belgium, for example. Um, so so that's what we're doing. But if you scale it up to the global level, it should all even out. Like uh, you, you're you're extracting natural capital at global level. Yeah. Uh, so so this is a, another debate: is what what's the the level of aggregation we should really consider? Um, so Pezzi and Burke have this really really nice paper where they look at what happens if we, uh, you know, we do um, global genuine savings? If we recalibrate, like you know, uh, the North House dice model to have like um, you know optimal controls or no controls, and then what happens if we have this big giant global cost of carbon? So like carbon mm. is, um, it, it's a global, it's a global pollutant. Doesn't matter where you emit it, it has an effect everywhere. But if you're only accounting for your carbon emissions, like at a national level, it might make much of an impact. But globally, this is where the impact comes. Uh, so globally, yeah, you scale up. Uh, all these issues with trade would go away. But then the problem becomes, well, how do you actually address a problem? If you notice that it's unsustainable, well, who's going to take action? And it's national governments that really, at the end of the day, are the ones that are, are sovereign and have the ability. So that, that's the limitation of that. But it does give a better sense of what's what's happening. Um, so their major finding, I think, was that once you, you take account of... Um, kind of global emissions. And if you change the, the social cost of carbon, uh, they have a really pessimistic one, worse than Stern. But um, yeah, I think it was showing like, you know, it was showing genuine savings to be more in line with ecological indicators, which are very pessimistic about, uh, it, you know, the, the economic impact or sorry, the ecological impact of economic activity. So, that, okay. so that, that's kind of an interesting one. Okay. I think, I think I've taken up a lot of your time now, Owen. Uh, I think we covered everything there anyway. So uh, thanks a million. No problem, thanks to you. So my thanks to Owen, and thanks to everyone for listening. If you want to keep the show on the road, the Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash irishycompod is where you can throw a few shillings in the tip chair. And that's about it, so I'll talk to you then in two weeks' time. 